Welcome, everybody, to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode, which boils down to three words, making money simple. As business creators, we sometimes find that wealth management, investing, knowing what to do with the revenues and profits of our business, knowing how to deal with the need to have money available, not only to meet emergencies, but also to meet opportunities. The thing about being a business creator, sometimes you need money. It goes back to the old cl cliche, you got to spend money to make money. That pretty much literally happens in business sometimes. You get into an ox and a horse cart, excuse me, an ox and a horse cart situation. I'm so excited about this topic. So to help us with this journey of making money simple, I have with us Peter Lazaroff. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about Peter. From a young age, he knew that he had a future in investing. Today, Peter is the Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, which manages over $4 billion for its clients. What makes Peter unique is his personable big brother perspective and unique ability to simplify complex issues for anyone. He's here to share insights from his book, Making Money Simple, and help you understand what today's financial landscape means for your money. Peter Lazaroff, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. All right. Before we dive in, I imagine at this point we have at least a few of our listeners who've opened a separate browser tab. They're starting to lean in and are binging the Yahoo out of the Googles looking to discover more about this Peter Lazaroff guy. And folks, that's spelled L-A-Z-A-R-O-F-F.com. Excuse me, L-A-Z-A-R-O-F-F. -F. You're welcome. His website, of course, is PeterLazaroff.com if you want to give that a quick look. Before we get into this whole concept of making money simple, and it's going to be a fun conversation, what we like to do here at Business Creators Radio is take a quick step back. And let's discover more about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community, market, and audience. Well, you know, I think that my path here today, it started at a really young age. You kind of mentioned that at the opening. And I tell that story all the time, but I was 12 years old, I think, when I got interested in stocks. And it was really spurred a gift from my grandmother on my birthday. I have a December 20th birthday and my father is Jewish and my mother's Catholic. So we celebrated all the holidays and I got all sorts of cool stuff as a kid. But on my birthday, my grandmother gave me this share of Nike stock. And I remember thinking, well, what the heck? Like this piece of paper, what's all this all about? And she started to explain to me, well, you know, those shoes you're wearing and that shirt you have, now you own a piece of this company. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. So I didn't totally blow it off. But my mind was really blown when suddenly checks came in the mail for dividends for work I had not done at all. I thought this is really great. And my parents 
had a newspaper subscription like many people. And even though most people don't go into the paper these days to look up stock prices, that's certainly what I was doing back then to check in on my Nike stock. And it just seemed to be going up, up, up. And I got more and more excited about that. So mind you, there's a little dose of good luck here in that grandma got me a really good stock out the gate that sparked a passion for it. But each birthday, she gave me another share of a stock of a different company I owned. And I knew from this young age, particularly when I was in high school and looking at colleges, that I knew I wanted to do something with stocks, which is very broad. It could mean all sorts of different things, which I didn't realize then and very much realize now. Now, fast forward to when I graduated from college, I went to work for a wealth management firm as a portfolio analyst and trader, which just meant I did a lot of individual stock research, uh, sat on our investment committee, and about five years ago, I came to PlanCorp. And today I'm the chief investment officer here. We oversee about four and a half billion dollars of assets as of the end of uh, 2019, I believe. And that means I oversee the investment committee, which manages all those assets. It means I do a lot of communicating to our clients, to our employees, and to people like yourself. I, I think over time, I've become very passionate about educating. And the primary way of which I've been doing that is through writing. And writing for me selfishly has always been a way that I learned something myself. Uh, my yeah. dad was a physician and he taught rounds at medical school. And he always talked about the process of see one, do one, teach one. And that's how they learn things in medical school. And the writing for me has been my teach one. I mean, that's when I really gain the greatest understanding. And so I think Making Money Simple is a, a book for me that probably formalized that more than anything. I've been writing for the Wall Street Journal and for Forbes for quite a while. I, I run a personal blog, which you mentioned, peterlazaroff.com. And even if you can't spell Lazaroff, Google's pretty good at fixing those <laughs> things for you. Um, and if you really struggle, you can always go to smartmoneyquiz.com, which, which will redirect you to my website as well. So that's sort of how I got here today and talking to you. All right, let's dive in here. For many of us in today's world, money is really not simple. Or I can tell you what's simple about it is, it seems like there's a challenge making ends meet. With some business creators in particular, you have a venture, you're funding your venture, you also have a life you need to live. You have rent or a mortgage, you got a car payment, you got kids, you got college, you got medical bills, you got everything else going on. And to me, I think that, it's never really quite as simple as people make it out to be, only because everybody seems to have their own story. Now, you're here because, as much as possible, you're going to help us simplify this and give us a framework. In your work with folks, what do you see are some of the biggest challenges that people face that they come to you with when it comes to building wealth, managing their money, and just keeping things under control? and building their financial future. So the biggest problem that I see is that people are human. And that's unfortunate yeah. because you're not gonna take <laughs> the human nature out of human and everybody's gonna have that problem. However, I think when you can identify some of our natural weaknesses when it comes to money, and they do manifest themselves in different ways, well, rather than trying to change human nature, you can build systems that work around those flaws in our natural instincts that are deeply ingrained in our DNA. And similarly, there are some sort of habits and behaviors that while mostly negative, you can find a way to leverage into positive. And I think the biggest thing that people 
want to do with their money is they want to take action um, when it comes to their investments. So business owners in particular fall trapped to this because they are used to seeing a problem, fixing a problem when they're working through a venture. On investing, yes, you are a partial business owner, but the reason that you are providing capital to these companies is different than what you would be doing in a company that you yourself are running. And so I think the, the biggest mistake people tend to make is seeking out activity. And this makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint when you think about um, if you and I are standing in the woods and we hear a rustle in the bushes, we're not going to sit there and calculate the probability that it's a lion versus the probability it's a wind, it, that it's wind. You know, if one of us does that, that one's getting eaten while the other one runs away. And right. you know, we have this fight or flight uh, mentality. And fortunately, we don't have to worry about getting chased down by lions anymore. However, this natural instinct to react to things that seem dangerous is really harmful. And similarly, our brains are pretty lazy. We love to find shortcuts everywhere. We are creatures of habit. And unfortunately, these habits can be bad just as often as they can be good. And so I do think that these mental shortcuts we've developed for ourselves have instilled some poor money habits when it comes to saving. Um, a great example being they do neural, they've done research on the neural patterns of what we're thinking about when we're saving. And we think of saving identically to giving money away to a complete stranger. Interesting. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating. And when you realize that that's the way your brain is framing up saving for the future, how can we bridge that gap? So again, our human nature is our biggest enemy but we can also find ways by building systems to make it our biggest ally. I never thought of that. So by saving money, we're functioning neurologically the same way as if we were just panning the money, giving it away. That's right, because it's wow. a choice between consumption today or consumption in the future. And if I were to offer you a great dinner tonight versus a great dinner a year from now, it's really hard to picture where you are from a year from now. And there's been studies like if you, would you rather have a $25 Starbucks gift card today or a year from now? And most people will take it today because it's easier to picture using it today. That, that person a year from now, we don't know who that person is. And when it comes to something like retirement, that for more people than not is more than a year away, and in some case, multiple decades away, it, it's really hard to connect with that stranger that is really just our future selves. Aha. Uh -huh. So that is very interesting. And what I'm hearing is we're dealing with the tangible versus the abstract. So if I were to take $25 and I were to put it away somewhere, whether it's just simply in my checking account or if I were to invest it somehow or I were to reinvest it in my business, whatever I was going to do with it, that is actually in some ways more challenging to do than to take the $25 and order a pizza because I can get the pizza in 20 minutes. Particularly if you're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I got you. I understand. So with all that in mind and our neurology working either with us or against us as we choose in that manner, what are some of the things that we can do to bulletproof our approach to meeting our financial goals, whatever they are? Well, that's a great question. So I think the best tool available to people today is automation. And there is an unbelievable amount of technology built into every financial institution there is, as well as into different apps and things on our phone that aren't necessarily affiliated with a specific financial institution. 
I know that when I was writing Making Money Simple, my thinking was, well, I've, I have some pretty decent financial success, but it's not necessarily the result of my career success. So I wanted to describe to people, how do we turn career success into financial success? And what are those things I did well, and I coach others to do well, that are very replicable to create this bulletproof approach, as you put it. And yeah. so I think when I started out, automation was not as prevalent. You had, to audit, you had to manually click that you wanted to save money frequently, unless you had like a 401k plan, that was a, a form of automatic savings. But the more automation you can build in, the easier it is to avoid forgetting or getting lazy or just not wanting to do something. So imagine the market, the stock market is down 10% in a week. You may not feel like making your monthly contribution. However, uh -huh. if it's automated, you don't give yourself that opportunity to make that mistake. Right. And what's amazing about something like investing in money in general is it can seem complex because there are so many different choices and even if you know what little part of your life you're going to focus on, the number of choices are immense and can be paralyzing. But in reality, it's not that complicated. You just need to know what to focus on and to build in little systems. And automation is the real key aspect of all of this. You know, sometimes people will say automation is the form of technology and automatic savings and automatic debt payment. But another, when you look up the word automation, it really just means giving away the decision to a third party. So now I am a financial advisor and this is going to sound super biased, but a form of automation can be hiring a professional to let sure. them then implement your plan for you. And so right. recognizing that if you're going to think of your future self as a stranger, how can you avoid putting off a good decision? How can you make good decisions over and over and over for decades on end. And I think automation, whether it's in the traditional technology, technological sense or through hiring, you know, a trusted advisor are, are really solid approaches. See, here's what I'm thinking of when I think of automation. As soon as you said that, I had the vision of setting up your bank account to take $10, $10 a day automatically, no matter what you do and put it somewhere else. There may exactly. be, yeah, now there, now, I'm not sure exactly how this works, but I know with some of my bank accounts, there are restrictions on how many times per month you can do transfers from one account to the next. I don't know why that is. There may be some sort of law. It may have something to do with uh, Homeland Security. I really have no idea. So if you can't do it daily, maybe then you do it weekly. So if your goal is $10 a day, once a week, $70. And you program yourself to make sure there's always at least $70 in the checking account that you're having it deducted from, but you don't have to think about that. That's going to happen by you doing nothing. So we're now using the power of the abstraction by removing it from our conscious entirely. And uh, $10 a day, that's $3,650 at the end of the year. We're not really thinking about how that accumulates. We're just going through life and just like you know, if you're going day to day, you know, you buy dinner one place, you buy a little gift for somebody another place, you buy gas another place. Uh, you have in the back of your mind, you might have spent about sixty dollars that day. It's kind of the same thing when we think about it. So, yeah, maybe, so, maybe, so maybe you schedule the seventy dollars for Sunday when you're unlikely to go anywhere if that's your day to stay home. 
Well, and I think the key is to do something that you wouldn't notice. So a lot of people, when they start making financial goals, they set these big amounts and they say, well, I really want to save. So I'm going to just put as much money as possible, as often as possible. And I'd argue that's not the right approach. You know, it introduces too many opportunities to have to walk it back or or not have the funds there to do it. Been there, done that. Yeah. And so finding a reasonable amount that you won't notice, even if the goal is long-term something bigger, you should start with that small manageable amount in large part because compound interest is so amazing. Now, most people, when you start saying the word compound interest, roll their eyes. They're like, sure, sure. I know my account Uh grows because it compounds. But I think one of the things our brains are not great at is really picturing the exponential nature of compounding. Our brains, and again, you hear me going into a lot of the behavioral stuff. We tend to think linearly. We can think really, we can really materialize and picture what one what one turning into two and two to three and three to four looks like. Yeah. But looking at one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32, yeah, I mean, you can all list those things, but let me give you a quick example that I think will blow your mind. Um, so if you take a piece of printer paper and it has a thickness of about a tenth of a millimeter and you fold it in half, you've now doubled the thickness of the paper, right? And if you fold it again, now it's four times as thick. Yeah. If you were somehow to fold that piece of paper 50 times and and you're not physically able to fold a piece of printer paper more than seven times, just in case anybody wants to try that out at home. But if you could fold it 50 times, the thickness would be from earth to the sun. Now I could have set you up and guessed, had you guess how big do you think it is, but there's no way that anybody comes up with that. And I think when you really think about how these little amounts are not noticeable in the short term with compound interest, they turn into something unbelievable in the long term. And so I would tell people, no matter how little the improvement is, whether it's in savings or just some other area of finance, you ought to find that one little thing because the impact compounds into something that is hard to ignore in the very long term. I understand. Makes a lot of sense, actually, when you think about it. And we're kind of on the same path here. The idea is is to make it something you don't think about. Here, here, let me give you an example right here. I very rarely write checks. For my personal, for my personal account that I use just for day-to-day stuff, I don't have a checkbook because I never need it. For my business account, I do have checks, but usually the checks are for me to have paychecks and distributions moved from my corporation to me personally. And I like the idea of a handwritten check that has to be taken to the bank because it tangibly illustrates that myself and my business are two different things aside from all the corporations and other veils and everything else. When it comes to paying bills, I like things to be automated. I wanna be thinking about putting money in the account. I don't wanna think about having to take money out of the account. So if you want to annoy me, like let's say you're a vendor of mine, you really want to annoy me, make it difficult for me to set up automatic payments. If you're a contractor of mine, uh, if you really want to get on my nerves, uh, refuse to automatically bill me on whatever day of the month we agree upon. Because then I have to stop and think about it and I might forget. But if I know it's going to happen then I'm just, even if in the back of my mind, I tangibly know that, well, within the next three days, I should expect about $3,000 to come out because it's about that time of month, then I'm focused on getting a few thousand dollars in that account. And that's a better place for me to be. 
Well, and you and I, you're right. We do share a lot of similarities. I, I have, you know, a traditional income job and I have an S corp and an LLC. And those are actually the only times when I, I do a similar system with the moving money of those yeah. to myself. It's the only manual process I have in there. And I think watching people on a daily basis struggle to make the right decision, even when they know it's the right decision, you know, that gives me a lot of faith in the fact that we need automation wherever we can find it. It's convenient. It saves us time. We have better things to do with our lives. But I also know that most financial success, and uh, this is extremely true on the investing side of life, you know, comes down to minimizing mistakes, just not getting in your own way. And you know, from there, things can be really easy. It's not brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It's closer to mowing the lawn. Um, I, you know, I think that anybody can do it. But when you have a professional help you set up the right systems or you, you, know, you get into a process where you know it's happening automatically, well, yeah. you're a lot happier about it. Agreed. Agreed. So coming back to our topic here, let's look at lifestyle creep. What are some of the strategies, if you found effective, to help people prevent lifestyle creep from sabotaging their goals? A moment ago, we alluded to, well, if you may set really big goals, then you may have to fall back and then you feel defeated. But other lifestyle creep can come into play. I'm thinking of a long time ago when one of my early mentors told me that one of these days I'll be making a lot more money. But as soon as I start making more money, I'd be driving a nicer car and wearing nicer shirts. There's a funny thing about income level and equalization. How do we keep all that at bay? Well, it's funny you give that example. So I always talk to people about how does this happen? You know, before I give you the solution, how does it happen? Um, I often compare it to if you place your bowl, uh, excuse me, you place your hand in a bowl of lukewarm water and you start heating it up, you're unlikely to notice the rising temperature because your, your hand adapts to that gradual change. Yeah. But eventually the water gets to a point where it's so hot that you'll burn yourself and you absolutely will notice, even if it doesn't instantly register. Now, yeah. of course, you take your hand out of that hot bowl and dunk it into a bowl of ice water and that's not going to feel good. And that's a lot of what happens when right. the lifestyle creep comes into our finances and we're forced to make a big change because people get some kind of a raise each year and without a plan to save that raise, it's really easy to use it by adding a few luxuries to your regular spending. And, and they're all yeah. little things. They're not harmful on their own. It's adding premium cable channels, buying a more expensive bottle of wine or making more frequent phone upgrades or nicer yeah. birthday gifts. Or I'm, I'm a big on like better purchase, purchasing better seats at like sporting events for me. That's kind of one of my big ones yeah. or slightly nicer airline seating. And you know, these aren't harmful individually, especially when you can truly afford the luxuries, but yeah. these little things have a way of adding up. Now I would say the research shows that your biggest raises, they come in your thirties and forties. Your Correct. income grows from your 20s into your, it peaks in your mid 50s, but the biggest raises, according to the Department of Labor, as well as some studies from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, that the, those decades in the 30s or 40s, those are when the really big raises happen. Yeah. And so it's really crucial to have this system in place that keeps the lifestyle creep under control when you receive these raises. And so when we look at automation as an example, you can set up a lot of systems that automatically increase your contributions on a yearly basis so that you don't have to do anything yourself. Um, I do think that another thing is anytime you get a raise, if you're going to carve out some of that to increase your lifestyle, that's fine and well, but do go ahead and update your other automations 
to go ahead and make sure that you don't let lifestyle creep take over your life. Because again, yeah. what you don't want to have happen is have your hand all nice and warm in that warm bucket of water and then find out that you don't have enough money for retirement, which is like dunking your hand into the ice water. That is not <laughs> going to feel good. So we got to yeah. make sure that you keep that hand comfortable. You can make that hand even more comfortable throughout life as long as that you are committed to increasing those savings along with those increases in pay. Or yeah. if you're a business owner and you have some windfalls, to make sure that you tuck those away for investment in the business or you know, investment in your future. Yeah. I'm going to argue that not all uh, feature creep is bad. Let me give you an example. When you get to a point where, and you mentioned airline upgrades, airline upgrades are sometimes a good thing. For example, when I'm flying, I go for the upgrade. I want the exit seat row with the extra leg room. I want business class if I can get it. I want first class if I can get it. Not because I feel entitled. Or not because I think, oh, I have a little bit of money, I'll just blow it on out. Or, hey, I got a lot of room in my credit card, what's that extra $100? The reason is very simple. If I'm going to be in a situation where I need to remain in my seat with my, with my safety belt securely fastened, fastened rather, I want to open my laptop and be productive. You can't do that in coach. I'm with you. I it's mean, I'm a big simple. person it's too. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I'm 6'3", so yeah, yeah <laughs> the leg room matters. And I write on the plane, so that's actually one of my favorite places to write because yeah. I don't have internet access um, and I don't have distractions of email. And I'm with you. And I think there's nothing wrong with finding – there's actually a part in the book where I talk about ways that you can increase your happiness through the spending of your money. So the book yeah. is not all about savings. But right. creating time or – purchases that bring convenience are things that, you know, scientifically are shown to increase happiness. You and I are happier with better airline seating than getting crushed yeah. in a middle seat in the back of the plane. Um, is for, that for, for everybody? For, for example, no, some people don't care. And, and if, you know, and if I'm just, uh, if I'm on like a 45 minute flight, I might not really care about that anyway, because by the time you get up in the air, uh, you'll have about five minutes to open a laptop. But if I'm going cross country or I'm going to be there for three or four hours, I want my upgrade. I am totally on the yes. same page. Now, let me take us on a little detour here because now that we're in this and I don't always get to talk about it, you know, the, you, a lot of times people are like, should I invest or pay down debt or should I save in an emergency fund or is it reasonable to put this car purchase? Like when you're prioritizing different financial goals, yeah. I do think that too many people in the financial profession, and I'm guilty of it to some extent too, just say save, 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 save. They yeah. don't talk about the spend. And I do think it's an important part. And I think that when you are looking at things, you know, if you are going to, for example, favor experiences over stuff, I mean, the research. That's me. That's oh, yeah. me. I mean, I'm an the research guy. shows that you, I mean, when you're, this is a little morbid, but when you're lying on your deathbed and you're not going to remember your, what iPhone you purchased or, you know, you, you're going to remember <laughs> the vacations you took with family and friends. You know, those are what create meaningful memories and lasting moments. And there's a lot of research that shows even something like an elaborate date night is going to hold more everlasting happiness than some purchase of a luxury good. That the novelty yeah. is super high at first, but then it wears really quickly. And, you know, again, uh -huh. and this is because we're good at adapting to change, you know, just like the hand in the water. And, and you know, the purchases that create time, like we hired a cleaning service, my wife and I, like we're obviously capable of cleaning ourselves, 
but it saves us a lot of time. And yeah. my wife swears I don't know how to pick up and she might be right, but I would swear that she doesn't know how to use the cleaning supplies. And I uh -huh. think I might be right. <laughs> but you know what? We avoid this, this entire disagreement. And I think it's one of the last expenses that we would cut in a bind because it saves us so much time and disagreement. And, and I think, you know, the research on the type of house, you know, you're more likely to get happiness from a shorter commute in not as nice of a house than you are with a really nice house, again, because you adapt to it. So, yeah. you know, I, I love the opportunity within lifestyle creep to say, yes, you need to find a way to not let lifestyle creep get out of hand. However, when you're like saving for long-term goals or when you are allowing some sort of lifestyle creep to come in, do think about those things that provide the lasting happiness, the experiences, the things that save time and introduce convenience. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that says charitable giving and giving to others drives happiness substantially. And look, that's not going to add to your net worth. It may reduce your tax bill, but beyond that. And so I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when considering all these things. Yeah, myself... And this could change in the future, but where I'm at right now, I live in a two-bedroom apartment, and I hear all the time, well, well, you should have a house, and you should be thinking long-term. Well, here are a few things that are going on for me. Number one, like you, I don't want the maintenance. Uh, this is a nice enough place for me and my cats. Now, if I find myself in a relationship or I find myself in a family way, then I reserve the right to change my mind on that. But right now, I like the idea of low maintenance. I really only have to clean this place once every two weeks, and it kind of keeps itself up because, I mean, there's only so much one person can do. What I'm most concerned about are the following. I like the fact that I have a really nice balcony because I like to spend a lot of time out there. I like the fact that I live in a community with multiple swimming pools because that's one of the reasons I moved to Las Vegas, to log more swimming time. And I like that if my hot water heater stops working, I make a telephone call and at no expense to me and usually no wait for me either, somebody shows up with a new hot water heater. That's happened to me twice in my years of living in apartments. The hot water heater goes, new one's in within an hour. All I have to do is make a phone call. That's amazing. And those are things that matter to me. Now, right. later on, I may reserve the right to say, you know, I'd like to live out in the country and have five acres and a farm and a place for my 20 cats and 10 kids to run around. All right, I'll make that decision when I get to it. Well, and I think that the, the choice to purchase a home is just a giant form of consumption. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with it. I own a home. Uh, you know, I'm very happy there. I got my kids yeah. and my wife there. And we're all happy. However, I think um, particularly leading up to the financial crisis, there was a lot of pressure to buy a home as yeah. an investment. And, you know, people always talked about it as a form of investment. But when you look at the long-term data, like you can look at home prices going back 100 years. And when you subtract out the benefit of inflation, home price appreciation has been about flat. It has been yes. roughly nothing after inflation, but you are always putting money into your house. You're, there's maintenance costs. There's the interest costs from a loan. There's the 6% fee you pay your broker to buy the house and uh -huh. sell your old one. These are, you furnish it, you paint it, you upkeep it, you pay taxes on it. That is not, an, if, it's, if you've roughly after inflation not made money after putting all that money into it, I don't know. That's not really an investment. To me, that's just a place to live. And it's great. Yeah. I have a home. I love my home. Um, for people who don't have homes, I feel like they get, they used to get ridiculed a little bit more until the housing bubble happened. And now everyone yeah. is a little more silent on it. But in reality, when you are picking your place to live, whether it's to rent or to buy, 
there's going to be a different decision for everyone. But here's what I will say is the math does not work out if you cannot be in that house for at least five years. That's the thing. I don't know if I'm going to be here for five years. Um, I think I'm going to be in Las Vegas for the long haul because I really like this town, but who knows what could happen. And I maintain the flexibility that I could follow an opportunity, whether it's a personal opportunity or a business opportunity. I leave that open for myself. I also know that maybe just right here in Las Vegas, I really like the place where I live right now. I've been in the same community for six years. I really like it here. But maybe something better comes along or maybe something goes bad here. One of the benefits of not owning is if the neighborhood you're in goes to shit, then you're not stuck and you go upside down on your house. That's a concern for people these days. Yeah. And that's why it's definitely not an investment because if it is, it's the most undiversified investment ever. It's a bet on a single neighborhood in a single city in a single country. You know, it's not a good diversified bet. And it's not, it's, it's also a very illiquid indivisible asset because if you need to go buy milk, you can't like shave off a piece of your kitchen counter with investments. Those those are things you want to go tap, but I don't want to rain on the parade of, of, owning a home. Again, oh, I've owned either. a home for over 10 years. And yeah. I just would tell people if you're ever on the fence of whether you should rent or buy a home, I would say, if you can't picture a scenario where there, you're there 10 years from now, you probably shouldn't buy. Yep, well, That I doesn't mean yeah. you have to stay 10 years. It just means if you're unable to fathom your life playing out in a way that you could be there 10 years, well, then it probably won't. And yep. I know that you don't start uh, you know, you definitely are losing money if you're in and out of the house in less than five years. It really only starts being accretive to your net worth when you're at the 10 year mark. And so, you know, right. it, again, it's not a hard rule, but it is a good kind of rule of thumb to use. If you're tempted to buy a house, but you're not sure it's really for you or you're ready to switch to renting after living in a house, you know, it goes both ways. You're just something to keep in mind. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't picture myself saying for sure I'm going to be here for 10 years. I know when I lived south of Pittsburgh, I lived lived in the same apartment for eight years, exactly eight years, uh, from Halloween of one year to Halloween of another year. Then I moved to Las Vegas. I was in a townhouse for one year that was okay, except I hated it. And then after that, (laughs) I moved into the apartment community I'm in now, been here for six years and counting. And, you know, nothing in this world is perfect. I've had a couple complaints about the place and the people down at the management office, they all know me and they've all heard that I've had a couple complaints. Uh, Usually it's about uh, the pump in the swimming pool breaking down in the summertime. But outside of that, uh, I believe that when you have more of what you need and want and less of what you don't need and don't want, you're headed in the right direction. And that kind of leads to my next question here, actually. And I'm glad you were willing to explore with me a little bit about this whole thing about home ownership, because that's a really big deal for folks, particularly entrepreneurs that and business creators that sometimes will bet a second mortgage or shave off the house so they have more liquidity in order to really invest in their business. Uh, possibly renting, possibly buying could be a mistake. And there are a lot of other mistakes you can make. So how can you effectively grow your wealth and avoid some costly mistakes? And and if you can, tell us a few costly mistakes you've seen that are epic or legendary and what you can do about it. <laughs> well, the the biggest mistakes that amount up to an absurd amount of dollars tend to be on the investment side. Okay. So I think that people tend to do fall into one of two buckets of mistakes and I'm going to be painting with broad strokes here, but one is that people chase performance 
So they want to own the investment that's done well recently and they yeah. want nothing to do with whatever is not that investment. Um, you know, when you're diversified, it's very boring. Uh, good investing is boring. Like if your portfolio is super interesting, you're probably doing it wrong. It is fun to have stories to tell people and it is fun to brag your friends about, you know, your huge returns when you happen to hit one out of the park. But if you do that, yeah. you are going to strike out a lot. And so I yeah. think the biggest mistake I see people make is when you're a diversified uh, investor, it means owning everything. And when you own everything, you not only own the winners, you own the losers. And so I always know that I've built a really well diversified portfolio when there's a part of your portfolio you hate. I know I've done yeah. my job correctly. And so people tend to want to sell the things that are doing poorly and buy the things that are doing well. And, you know, they only remember the things that happened recently. So something that happened a decade ago seems to have been erased from their memory. And, and a good example at a really high level is a lot of people don't want anything to do with international stocks because U.S. stocks yeah. have done so well in the past decade. Well, when I got into this profession, U.S. stocks did nothing for a full decade. International trounced them. And yet that conversation was always, why do we have so much U.S.? We should have more international. Whereas today is, oh, I don't want any international. I just want the U.S. So that's one big part. Um, the other thing is market timing. And that yeah. manifests itself in a lot of ways. I think people are always waiting for a certain type of drop where they think we're at the market top and they want to get in uh -huh. and they'll get back in. Or excuse me, they'll want to get out and then get back in when things are more certain. Um, it, it, that's just not the way it works. If it were that easy, a lot of people would do it. But there is a long, long, long history of research that shows that nobody can do that well. And the problem is when you try to avoid the downturns, you miss, up, you miss out on the up days and those are disproportionately bigger and they last for disproportionately longer amounts of time. And there's a great quote, and I got this when I was really young um, from a famous fund manager named Peter Lynch. And he always talks about how more money has been lost in preparing for corrections than in corrections themselves. Uh -huh. So I think most people... Look, the long, long financial theory works great in the long term, but the long term is just an eternity to live through in the moment, particularly when you're watching your portfolio go down. And so I would say the people that are really committed to a long-term approach should just try not to look and that can help mitigate the temptation to time the market. Yeah. You know, you, just as you were telling that story, I thought of two things from, and I'm not going to get political here, but I am going to mention some names and some political things as they pertain to money. I remember several years ago that a story broke about the liberal left-wing activist, Michael Moore, Somebody looked into his investments and found out that he owned a piece of Halliburton, which was that defense contractor where Dick Cheney had been the CEO. And they said, whoa, 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 Mr. Fahrenheit 9-11, what are you doing owning Halliburton? <laughs> As I recall, the explanation was, is he was working with advisors. They were under instructions to diversify. And as part of diversification, they were moving some of his money around and making bets based on things that were most likely to get returns. They weren't thinking about ideology. They were thinking about how do I make my blue chip ticket, my, excuse me, my blue chip client, Michael Moore, more money. That's right. Yeah. And that's actually a great example of how people, it's a great example of how people look to those in the public and assume that their views inform the way their money's managed. And yeah. this is especially true with famous investors where you'll hear them on CNBC going off about something, but they never talk about 
what's in their own personal portfolio. They right. might talk about what the firm owns, but, and actually I'm a really good example of this. So uh, I mentioned the last time I checked in this, the end of 2019, we were managing a little over four and a half billion dollars. I'm the chief investment officer. So my portfolio, you might assume looks pretty cool, right? But in yeah. reality, I own a single fund that's globally diversified and is low cost and gives me everything I need. And people are like, wait, wh why? Why is it so simple? And for me, it's because I have all the exposures that I can get from the 10 to 20 funds we might use with a complex portfolio. Yeah. But also, you know, I see two different funds every single day. And so I need to protect myself from making mistakes because there is no perfect portfolio. There's really just the only one that you can stick with for as long as possible. And so I know I have the right asset allocation because of this single fund. I know my costs are super low. I don't have to do a single thing other than just continue to pile money into it. However, when, you know, I think that can come off as a surprise. And so when you hear people, particularly on TV, particularly in the news, maybe less so um, you know, in this sort of format, but they'll project views about the economy or about specific funds or specific companies. But if you were just able to ask that person, well, what's in your portfolio? What are you doing in your portfolio? I would venture to guess that most of them would say, well, low cost funds. And no, I'm not really making any trades in my portfolio. I'm just sticking with the plan. Yeah. Because once you do the research, once you see the research, it's undeniable that that is the right approach. You know, that's, yeah. that's going to give you the highest chance of success. And, you know, I think it's an interesting point you raise and, um, you know, hope maybe that's surprising to hear. I only own one fund despite all the work I do, but ultimately it's giving me the same exposures. It just gives me personally the highest chance of success in making sure that I don't make any mistakes along the way. I think that's an argument for trusting at least some of your wealth to a financial advisor, because let's say you're somebody who's really caught up in ideology and you're thinking, no way would I ever invest in that company. I don't believe in their values. Uh, they, uh, they support the people I don't like, but you can make money there. Now you're going to have a passionate if you have that feeling, you're going to have a passionate reaction to the idea that your money could be there. However, if you're entrusting somebody to diversify your funds and increase your money, they can just do it for you. You don't have to know about it. Uh, they just show you the statements and show you made more money and say, okay, I made more money. I'm happy. Don't tell me too much. <laughs> yeah. Anytime that you let emotions get into your investment process, you've got a problem. And, and yeah. there are cognitive mistakes people make. There are emotional mistakes people make. And again, I'm biased as an advisor, but I mean, I hired my own financial advisor last year because I just realized I didn't have the time to put forth to focus on my tax issues, some of my estate planning stuff. The yeah. investments, it's a single fund. That was the sort of me outsourcing my investment management to a single fund provider. Um, yeah. There's a lot of ways right. of going about that. But, you know, I think that I mentioned mowing my grass earlier. We hired someone to mow my grass long, long ago, but I used to do it myself. And I remember when I bought my first home, I was super excited to mow the lawn because I never had a lawn to mow when I was growing up. <laughs> and once a week, I would get out there and I'd roll up my sleeves, I'd mow the lawn, and it took me about 90 minutes to do. And it looked fine. Like, I definitely didn't kill the grass. But there were times where I would say, oh, you know, I'm going to go golf with buddies or I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I wouldn't have checked the weather and it rains. And then I have work the next day and uh -huh. then I can't mow it for another week. And it's just a real mess. But when we hired somebody to mow the lawn, it went from me not killing the lawn and it looks fine to it looks really nice. You know, and they're strategically seeding and they're cutting the grass at different lengths, whether there's shade or no shade. And they're, they're 
edging the bushes and, you know, ultimately I had a healthier, better looking lawn. Could I mow my lawn myself? Of course I could. But when you hire a professional, they're going to do a better job, whether it's mowing the lawn or managing your nutrition and physical health or managing your money. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I will tell you this. The only thing that I regret about not owning a house is I have no grass to cut. Mowing the <laughs> you lawn. You cut the grass, huh? Mowing the lawn is my zen. When I was growing up, I, the one thing I liked about us living out in the country, although I hated everything else about it, was there was a big yard. And I used to mow that thing every week with a push mower. It was, I, I'd turn my music on, I'd get immersed in it, and it, it, made, me, it made me feel good. Uh, it made me look good, actually, because it was great exercise when you think about it, because mm-hmm. there was a lot of hillsides and everything else. And what would irritate me the most is our neighbor, actually my grandfather was our neighbor, he had a riding lawnmower and somehow he had this sixth sense that somehow he knew if I were, if if today was Tuesday and I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to cut the grass on Thursday. Wednesday afternoon, he'll be out there with that freaking riding lawnmower. (laughs) And, 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 And my issue was, it was number one, he's taking away my fun. And number two, because a lot of the properties, uh, both his and my parents, were on hillsides and they had recently been cleared of weeds, so the erosion effect hadn't really had a chance to balance things out. If you push, a, if you put a riding lawnmower on that, it leaves a lot of unevenness that really only a push mower could do at that point. So when I tried to do it the next day with the push mower, I couldn't always see where I was going. <laughs> and he's I, trying to I, help, but he's yeah. taking away your glory. Yeah, I th- yeah, I finally got it all to stop. I think I was about 15 years old or uh, something along those lines, and uh, and I was somewhere. And then I came home one day to find out that my that my uncle had uh, now gotten into the act of cutting our grass and used a riding lawnmower. And it was the day before I'd planned to do it once again. And uh, he wanted a big attaboy because he thought he'd done me a favor. And I said, "Did you use my gasoline?" <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, well, you owe me for the gasoline and don't ever touch my grass again. After that, people kind of left me alone because they recognized, don't take away my grass. Well, when you buy your home someday, I do hope you get your lawn that nobody touches but you. If I, if I have a home, if I have a house, that means there's a good chance that at that point I'll have kids. And it's possible that I might have a son or daughter who gets the same zen feeling from cutting grass. And in that case... We'll probably have to make a deal. This one's mine. This one's yours. We'll probably have to do something. Now, don't get me wrong. My grandfather, my uncle, and everybody else are great men. I I love them dearly. So don't think it is anything like that. I'm just reacting to the situation of, come on, man. This is the one thing that I really love. I mean, put me behind a push mower. I mean, I used to not only enjoy mowing all those hillsides and everything else, I used to go into the areas of the property that were still covered by weeds and gradually extend the borderline of how much was mowed. I mean, there's a whole section of my parents' property to this day that because I kept extending the property, extending the portion of their property that was maintained by a mower, they've been able to build additional buildings like uh, storage sheds. They've been able to put up their decorative fire pit and all kinds of things because I took the time to extend their maintained yard. Well, isn't that something? Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot 
of satisfaction in our lives. And granted, you were younger then, but when you're younger and when you're older, there's so many complex things that you start and you can't finish in a single sitting. But mowing the lawn is always that one thing where it's, here's a problem that you can fix in a single sitting. Now, granted, that problem comes back every week, but it is very satisfying anytime we can kind of make something look nice and take ownership of it. Yeah. And, and, to, and to me, um, you know, that's when it comes down to things like leverage. And here's one more example. And in a moment, we're going to speak about uh, a little bit more about whether somebody should hire a financial advisor, because that's kind of where we're going to end up. But here's another example. I have, uh, I have a financial advisor. I have a tax planner. Uh, somebody who actually understands entrepreneurial tax planning, not just somebody who tells you how much to pay. I have a CPA. They all happen to be the same guy, which is fine. Uh, and he's really good at what he does. That stuff is something I really don't want to think too much about. He understands investing. He helps me make more money. Um, I understand enough about tax laws to know what I'm reading and signing, but I don't know enough to do the calculations. And I'm not a math guy, so I don't want to get involved in it. I know enough to understand that I have confidence he's doing the right thing by me, which is about where I'm at. All that being said, I do my own entry of data into QuickBooks. Here's the reason why. That is the only opportunity I have to get up close and personal with my cash flow going in, or rather going out and coming in. That gives me the intimate view of where there's opportunity to reposition cash flow, where there's opportunity to bring more cash flow in, where I see, where I see gaps. That lets me get close to it in a way that I never would by reading a report that somebody else ran for, for me. That being said, I outsource the rest. And in fact, my CPA knows, and he listens to some of these episodes, so he'll be familiar with this. He has two jobs, basically, when it comes to my taxes. Uh, number one, to make sure that we are fully in compliant with all federal, state, and local taxes, and we pay everything we're supposed to. And number two, to do the bare minimum of that that's absolutely necessary. Yeah, because it's one, I mean, everybody has to pay their tax bill, but you don't have to leave them a tip. Exactly. So with all, so with all this, um, you know, and I've had debates with people as well, and I think it's a good place for us to end up in our conversation. Uh, there are those who say, absolutely, outsource it to a financial advisor. And then there are those that say, well, I study the markets. I look at the, I look at the stock prices and everything, and nobody knows more about my money than I do. Nobody cares more about my money than I do. So with those two sentiments out there, I think I'm, th- I'm going to go out on a limb and speculate that you may have a preference. But <laughs> what should we be looking at as far as decision points to make the right decision for ourselves? Well, let me work off the example you gave about why you like entering stuff into QuickBooks. Yeah. You liked that it gave you an opportunity to get up close and personal with your cash flows so you could see where the right places to make moves and changes are. Now, here's what's difficult about investing relative to that is if you're up close and personal with your portfolio, first recognize that the best action, no matter what the event in the markets are, or your portfolio, the best action is usually no action. And that is really hard to do when we're, it's hardwired into our brains yeah. to take action when we feel any sort of emotion related to it. The other thing is that you sort of forget with investing, particularly because of the way the media frames things up and the way that websites design themselves, you forget who you're competing against. So let me paint a picture real quickly for you. When market prices are moving around, 
well over 95% of the traders are large institutional traders that undoubtedly have more information than you. And there are millions of people every single day trading and pricing securities based on what they should be worth. So if you're ever looking at your portfolio and you are saying something like that's undervalued or that's overvalued, you are collectively saying that millions of people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And no one knows they're really saying that. And this is a really light touch on theory and I won't go super deep there, but have you ever seen one of those things where you have to guess how many jelly beans are in a jelly bean jar? I've tried it and I've always failed. Yeah. So what's super interesting about that, and this has been replicated a number of times, is that if you ask a big group of people how many jelly beans are in this jar and you take the average of those guesses, it is frightening how close to the actual value that the average guess becomes. And this is the same if you have people estimate the weight of a cow or, you know, something like that and, or the price of a stock when there are millions of people with eyes on it. And what happens is in everybody's guess with the jelly beans, there's two pieces to it. There's information and there's error. So we can all see the jelly beans. We might have different processes. And when you get a large enough group of independent, motivated guessers, what happens is the errors tend to cancel themselves out. And what you're left with is information. And of the hundreds of billions of dollars traded every single day by super smart, highly motivated people, you know, they are setting prices at roughly what they should be. And so you, you, this is all a complicated way to tie back to why do you need an advisor? Well, you are not smarter than all those people. An advisor is not necessarily smarter than those people either. However, the reason you have an advisor on the investment side of life is largely that a behavioral coach because an advisor can earn a lifetime of fees by preventing you from doing one stupid thing. And, and a lot of times I say a lifetime of fees are earned in a single bear market. And we have bear markets with a laughingly degree of regularity. I mean, not every year, but you know, market correction of 10% on average happens every 12 months. Um, the 20% are bigger on every three and a half years. And then something bigger than that's more like once a decade. But when you hire an advisor from an investment perspective, they will make it you very aware of how little you actually do know about markets and they will get you to stick to a plan that is based on data and objectives of your own and not feelings And you know, they can protect you from yourself on that front. Now you had mentioned being able to do taxes and the other stuff. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest value add outside of the investment is someone who can find a way to minimize your taxes both today and in retirement. Um, yeah. You know, I lightly said everyone should pay their tax bill, but you should never leave the IRS a tip. Yeah. I genuinely believe that. I think that a lot of people end up tipping the IRS and uh -huh. they don't even know. And they use accountants. They'll use tax preparers who are CPAs. And I think I often will say there's a difference between a tax preparer and an accountant. Because yeah. when we're doing tax projections for people and you're a business owner and you can find times to accelerate or delay income or expenses, that can change your bracket for a year, which allows yep. you to do other things that lowers your tax bracket in retirement, whether retirement's five years away or 20 years away. Been there, done that. You can actively be doing. So I don't think that hiring, there is such a thing as hiring a bad advisor. So if you hire a bad advisor, that's not going to help. How do you decide to, how do you determine if someone's a good advisor? Well, we'd need a whole another hour to talk about that. Uh, yeah. I suppose you can add, read, read chapter 12 of my book. Um, you can go to smartmoneyquiz.com, uh, nine questions that kind of gives you some resources, one of which will be how to interview and hire an advisor. And then I have some resources on my, uh, on my website and 
the quick link to that instead of Peter Lazaroff would be wealthworksheets.com. Just because I figure nobody can spell Lazaroff anyways. And I think that hiring an advisor, yeah, right? So, um, you know, hiring advisor, I'm obviously biased, but I've also done it myself. You know, I eat my own cooking here. And anytime you hire a professional to do a job, it's hard to argue that they aren't going to do a better job than you. Yeah. You're not going to go argue a case in court if you're not an attorney. You're not going to pro provide medical procedures on people if you're not a doctor. You know, you're not going to offer to do other people's tax returns if you aren't an accountant. You know, why do you uh -huh. think that you can invest? Well, there is a large industry out there called Wall Street that wants you to think you can do it on your own. Because remember I said, over 95% of trades are institutional. And if they're playing at you, imagine a poker table. They want suckers at their poker table. They oh, want yeah. you trading. And so there is a huge amount of advertising dollars pumped into the system to let you think that you can do it on your own. And yes, you can do it on your own. Just like I mowed my lawn, I did not kill my lawn. Uh, but when I hired a professional, it looked better. Exactly. Exactly. So we're actually near the top of the hour here. And I want to you know, let you know that I really appreciate those resources. So one more time, if you could, uh, or if the answer is different, if there's anybody out there who's looking to take the next step with this, where do you suggest they go from here? Obviously toward you. Uh, but what do you have for them? I think you mentioned it, uh, and I think you may have already mentioned them. So if we could recap that, what it is you have available to share with them. Sure. Well, let's keep it really simple. I'll give you one thing because I think you can get a lot of what you need there. It's smartmoneyquiz.com. Okay. And it's a quick assessment I put together, nine questions. And what it allows me to do is tailor the resources I'm providing to you based on your response. So you'll, they'll ask some background and based on the response, you'll get custom resources based on your specific situation. So just head to smartmoneyquiz.com. And from there, you'll have everything you need that I'm able to provide you. All right, that's awesome. So, Peter Lazaroff, I'm so happy that uh, we were able to have you here today. It's been an honor and an education. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. Great. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. We trust you've enjoyed today's episode. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Till next time, have a great day. Take care.